standard issue for all women. Hello, Hannah here. Because Friday is International Women's Day, we're doing things a bit differently this week. We've got six podcasts for you covering the arts, science, sport and history, with one being released every day up until Saturday. We talked to writer Lisa Holdsworth about her new play, about the troubled life of playwright Andrea Dunbar. We chat to comedian Angela Barnes about women in history. We host a round table with the Royal Society of Chemistry. We talk 100 years of women in the police with author and former police officer Jennifer Rees. We talk to Carla Williams about her production company, Ms Mono. And we talk to Jill Scott... Manchester City and England midfielder about the forthcoming Women's World Cup, among other things. So, loads to enjoy there. If you've got time, you should listen to them all. But before that, here's a bit more about the episode you found yourself listening to now. Earlier this year, the Royal Society of Chemistry got in touch and said they'd like to do something with us. And we said, big yes, please. And then we noticed that International Women's Day and British Science Week are both in the same week. And we said, let's do something then. And they said, great idea. Do you want to talk to some brilliant women in science? And we said, it's probably best that we do as little of the talking as possible. How about a round table? And they said, great idea. And so that's what we did. And this is the result. And it's really very interesting. Enjoy. Hello. Probably the best place for us to start is if you can all tell us a little bit about you. Hello, my name's uh, Dr. Gemma Louise Davies. So I'm a lecturer in University College London, or UCL, and officially my title is Lecturer in Materials Chemistry. So what that means is that um, during the day I had varied roles. First and foremost, we carry out lecturing for undergraduate and postgraduate students, but as well as that, we direct research groups within UCL. So my research group is made up of about 14 people, and we're working working on developing and designing nanomaterials for medical applications, but also looking at how they behave within the environment. Hi, I'm Pip Matthews. I am the Diversity Officer at the Royal Society of Chemistry. So I run a lot of our projects on things like women into science, our LGBT community, research of resilience and mental health. And i based at our offices in Cambridge. I'm Dr. Clay Murray. I am a researcher at Diamond Light Source, which is the UK's national synchrotron. And that sounds like quite a fancy word. It basically means we're a practical accelerator. So we make x-rays and we look at stuff. And stuff <laughs> is quite it's quite broad, but it can be anything from a Rembrandt painting, which we got to do recently, that was amazing, through to looking at materials for new batteries. Um, so for example, Gemma might come and actually visit us and use some of our facilities. Um, and it means we get to meet lots of people and to do lots of really exciting science. Hi, uh, my name is Dr. Shahini Karnarayan. I'm a reader in device and energy materials at the Department of Material Science uh, in the University of Cambridge. I have a, a research group of about 12 people and we look into developing novel functional polymeric materials for applications in energy harvesting, in sensing, uh, and also biomedical applications. So uh, a lot of our work is very experimental, very hands-on. Uh, and we're looking at ways by which we can uh, use you know, advances in nanoscience and technology to unravel new functionalities in these uh, materials. What first drew you to science? I guess it's the, the curiosity factor most of all. As far as I can remember from my childhood years, I've, I've always been curious about how things work, uh, why things are the way they are. I've had a, a strong sense of trying to 
pick apart things to to understand really what what makes them up, what makes them go. So a lot of broken uh, remote controls and VCRs growing up <laughs> <laughs> around the house. I guess it was uh, mostly curiosity driven, just just wanting to to find out about things. And as time went on, it was also you know wanting to discover new things. Uh, and I think t- till this day, that's um, you know the the nicest thing about my job, the fact that I get to go in and discover new things, you know, on a, on a daily basis uh, sometimes. Is that ringing a bell with the rest of you? Definitely. Like Sahini said, curiosity is something that drives everyone. And I think the most amazing thing for me is that if you think about it, whatever you're listening to this podcast on, that involves atoms and molecules. When you breathe in, that's atoms and molecules. When you laugh at us or with us, you're inhaling or exhaling atoms and molecules. Your body, the table, the transport, everything is atoms and molecules and those are tiny tiny lego blocks and that's that's our job we get to play with those we get to make (laughs) them do things and that's an incredibly fascinating thing and i think that's what that's what pulled me in from the very start for me it's also it's a challenge that that is within what we do so i actually started off doing a natural sciences degree and when i started off i was absolutely convinced that i was going to do um genetics or something like this i found the logic of that really interesting but then as i went along it was doing work in the lab that i found really challenging i i I didn't do well every time and i didn't get straight a's and the thing that i was doing the worst at if you like was chemistry and that inherently was like a massive challenge to me and i had to kind of solve it and follow it I think what Gemma said is is really, really important because I think people don't talk about the fact that science involves a lot of failure. Yes. That things go wrong Uh all the time. And that's, that's something that's really important for people to understand, that we make mistakes and we learn from them. And I think that's a really important conversation to, to remember and to have. Yes. Shrugging your shoulders and, well, that's science, so how are we going to figure it out? This is pretty much a daily <laughs> sentence that's said in, in meetings with, with my students, undergraduates, everybody. It can take months or years. Mm-hmm. That's something that, <laughs> that you kind of don't see when you have this image of the scientist with the, the critical breakthrough and you just have a light bulb moment and it's fixed and that very often does not happen and you're there slogging away at a problem and then eventually you get the wonderful rush of and now I've fixed it, I've worked hard on this, and here we go. Yes, absolutely. It's uh, it's really like putting together a, a giant puzzle um, and, you know, finding those little pieces and, and putting them together. And when it all does come together, and sometimes it doesn't all come together at once, uh, and sometimes you might actually end up with a very different picture from where you started, mm-hmm. but it's, it's just those uh, sort of... Uh, wow moments that for me at least keep me going. You just mentioned there that the stereotype of science now the stereotype of a scientist is still very much in this country certainly uh, a man. Have things changed in the time that you've been working in science? I am still quite early in my science career so I don't think I've been in, in this long enough to say it's changed massively what I think is really interesting is the conversations we're starting to have now about who is a scientist there's a lot of questions around access to science and how people can access science. I would like to see more people understanding that they can be a scientist. And that's just not just for women, but it's also for people who come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, people who are, who are disabled, people who are LGBTQ+. We want to open doors, and I think we're still needing to have a lot more of these conversations. So it's it's changing, but I think for, I think for us particularly who care quite passionately about this, it's not changing fast enough. And trying to identify what we need to do to change that is is really, really critical at this point in time. 
Yeah, I totally agree with that because for me, it's it's quite a lot about visibility. So if I think back to how and why perhaps I chose the path I chose, and you know, I'd, I'd like to think that there was no bias, that I was purely following the, the science of it. But when I think specifically of those role models and those people who perhaps had early influences on me, a, a lot of them were women. Now, a lot of them were men as well. But I think that it's really important to be able to see people in these, these roles that we maybe want to move into or that we want to do really well at because then we can say yeah okay well there's someone who's like me there's someone who looks like me so yeah I I can do this but you know still the cartoons are of that elderly gentleman with you know fuzzy fuzzy white hair and a lab coach looking all uh, hair-brained which is fine and there certainly do exist those scientists but you know I, I think that there is becoming more influence and more visibility for for women more so now than perhaps there was a few years ago. During my PhD, I I didn't even know that there was any other way, really, um, because I was in a department. So I trained as a physicist. I was in a department where there were about, um, I don't know, 32 members of faculty, uh, of which only one was a woman. (laughs) And it it was just how it was. And, you know, no one, it it wasn't even something that we actively questioned. So in the last few years, the issue has come to the forefront a lot more clearly now. And people are talking about it like we are today, which I think is, is a positive step uh, in that direction. But yeah, I, I, I do think things have, have changed uh, over time, but I'm sure we would like to see see things moving even faster. There's still more change required, oh, for sure. But it is great, the conversations that are happening, and mm-hmm. a lot of those come out of these reports and these institutions which have been set up, like the Athena Swan Institution, which is to highlight and overcome discrimination and, and equality, let's say, um, between men and women. And also then, of course, this Royal Society of Chemistry report that's come out very recently which is a very nice way of highlighting even just facts and figures. It's it's not just based on hearsay and you know you've heard these terrible stories and oh my goodness is it really that prevalent? Well no actually we've got we've got numbers now which which do actually demonstrate that there that there have been problems and that there are ways that we must identify to overcome them. Pip, can I ask you to tell us a bit more about that report? Yes, we looked we actually did a previous report, which was the diversity landscape of the chemical sciences, which is you know really catchy. <laughs> but we had a look at the entirety of chemistry and sort of wanted to pick out where the problems were. And one of the major problems that we found that actually the retention of women in chemistry is still a massive problem. So actually, at undergrad, it's nearly 50-50. We have 44% of female undergraduate students. Fantastic. We're doing better than physics, better than engineering. (laughs) But we have this huge problem that we can't hold on to these women. They go off and do literally anything else. They might train for eight years, do a PhD, do a first postdoc position, and then go and do something else, which shows that we have a massive problem in our community. And so we wanted to talk to the community and find out what these barriers were that people were encountering, and then to hopefully make the entire culture a better place for women. We actually found a huge host of problems, but in particular, there's things around the funding structure. So there are a lot of short-term contracts, which mean that you're going to be hunting for jobs often and possibly moving around a lot. And it tends to be that women's lifestyles, whether it's because you've got caring responsibilities or whatever it is, means that this makes life a lot more difficult for you. There are things around actually departmental culture, Uh, whether that's bullying, harassment, relationship with supervisors, just lack of support. Those are 
really serious barriers to women in chemistry departments. Just on that point, that idea of of moving around in short-term contracts, that is certainly something people have said to me are are reasons why they are less interested in in pursuing these types of careers. But on the flip side, there is a massive benefit to... uh, some of the ways in which these happen um, you can go somewhere else, you can pick up a, a wide range of new skills but the most important thing to actually make sure that this is okay for people and that people can actually do this is having those support systems that are around you and so some of the initiatives now that the Royal Society of Chemistry is starting up are so very important to be able to support that so I'm, I'm sure probably I'm jumping ahead and in, in, in discussing this but things like the Carers Fund, is that the correct term for it? Yeah. So the Carers Fund is really important, you know, having that ability there, that fund there that that can help you with childcare or other caring responsibilities or whatever you have so that you can go to these conferences, go to these different places, pick up these new skills. It's absolutely vital in making sure that there's not just an automatic mountain in front of you that you simply can't overcome in order to upskill, if you like, or diversify or network or any of those things. Yeah, we're really keen balancing work with other other responsibilities Mm -hmm. Uh, so whether that's your caring or just life and your work and the long hours that are required for academia and how do you balance that Mm -hmm. and so the carers grant is hopefully a way that everybody can apply for these um, because it's not just women who have caring responsibilities but it does disproportionately fall onto women Mm -hmm. and so we want to put that support there so if you do need to go and go to a training course even It doesn't need to be chemistry specific, but if it's going to increase your career, your prospects, we want to support you in that. Have women in science had it as rough as it would appear? Claire's laughing. I I think she's. Yeah, Claire, I think Claire Claire really wants this one. Go, Claire, we'll all agree. (laughs) So I think one of the really interesting things to consider is who do you think of when you think of a scientist? So if actually, if I can ask you, Hannah. Yes. Think of scientists. Yes. Give me uh, names. Rosalind Franklin. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, top marks. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that just because I have had this conversation before and I have a bee in my bonnet about her because it took a long time for anyone to give her any credit for the work she did. Franklin, we, we could rant about for ages because one of the other challenges about Franklin is people don't actually talk about her work. So they talk about how much she suffered and how terrible everything is, but we don't frame her in the context of her work. And that's actually adding to the problem. And that kind of links back to what I have a problem with is that visibility. And and Gemma mentioned it before, we need to highlight it again, because when you see and when you talk about scientists, people talk about men. And you think about, say, when it doesn't just happen on TV, it happens in lecture halls. It happens in secondary school classrooms. And that's something that I'm personally very invested in because the Royal Society of Chemistry have actually given me some money to investigate this. I'm looking at gender bias in chemistry textbooks, so for secondary school in the UK and in Ireland. And myself and Dr. Michael Seary up in Edinburgh are analysing both who is mentioned. Now, there will be a bias there because women haven't had as Mm -hmm. much opportunity to contribute to science. But there will also be a bias in the imagery. So who do who do you see when you open up a textbook and you look at generic scientist, not famous scientist? It actually turns out that you have 27 pictures of men and three of women. Yeah, I can tell you this as someone who has to quite often search for generic <laughs> photographs <laughs> on stock those photos. things. Yeah. Stock mm-hmm. photos. Stock, mm-hmm. it's, but it's not just stock photos because it, you also have a situation where when someone does a textbook, they might say, oh, actually, I don't have a particular image of instrument X. And so they just go to, say, a chemistry department and say, can I take a picture of somebody standing beside instrument X? And they don't take a step back and say, actually, what are we presenting to the world? What's 
story are we telling? Because we have things like women peroxiding their hair, whereas men are out being scientists. Yeah. And that is just bananas. It just doesn't make any sense. And I think we need to think about visibility. We need to think about profile. We need to think about things like award nominations. And, and I should say, this is really critical. It's not just women's job to talk about women. Mm. It's actually we need to think everyone needs to be saying when you go into a lecture hall, you need to be saying the work of you know this woman and the work of this man. And too often when you do sit down in those lecture halls or you sit down in those classrooms, you don't hear those stories. And this is why saying classrooms, for example, when you ask them, you know, what scientists do you know? If you are lucky, you will get Skodoloska Curie. And <laughs> <laughs> um, it's very important to give her her proper name. So if you're lucky. And that's kind of, that's tragic. That is not just kind of tragic. That is tragic because there are so many more scientists, so many more stories of people who happen to be women that we could be telling and we don't. Also, the way that women are presented when they are talked about. So one of my absolute pet hates is when you see, I think I was reading, it was an obituary of a reasonably notable female scientist. And it said something along the lines of, though being in the lab all day, this scientist was able to have dinner on the table for her oh, husband and her two sake. children. There is also the image, Dr. Suze Kundu, who is a nanochemist, wrote a piece for us about when she was in an interview with The Times and the first thing they commented on was what she was wearing. She does have some really good science dresses, but yes, it's not <laughs> the most important thing about her. It's, no, it's really not. The shots from that, I mean, it was all over Twitter as well. I know Suze through kind of a work thing and I, I, I watched the video, I saw these tweets and I thought, no, no, before reading any more, I'm going to go ahead and watch the video and it was ridiculous it was terrible it, it was, was just ridiculous a they, did a, they did an up and down of of just really close up of what she was wearing all the way down to her shoes and then they you know stopped on her shoes for a while and and then went back up and and all you could look at was her shoes and i was like, oh, sugar what was she actually saying? and if so even me as a woman was going what are they doing and i wasn't listening to what she was saying and so the whole point actually, of this was gone she was making a point about sexual harassment <laughs> as the, the cameraman focused oh, in on what she so was wearing ironic. <laughs> there people of London and the surrounding areas. Anyone who's been paying attention will know that we've moved to a new London venue, King's Place, and a super venue it is too. We'll be back there on April the 18th with Jane Flippin Horrocks and Helen Lederer, and again on May the 19th when we'll be chatting to she of Best Newcomer nomination at last year's Edinburgh Fringe, Cindy V, and the legendary Catherine Tate. Am I bothered though? Actually, yes. Yes, I am. More info and indeed tickets can be found at sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. Going back to the point you just made, I rather cheated by saying Rosalind Franklin because I live in Cambridge. <laughs> I would like to hear some stories about the sort of women that we should be hearing stories about. Do any of you have a hidden heroine or a hidden history that you could get me excited about? One of my favourite scientists is a, a woman called Kathleen Nonsdale and she is incredibly brilliant. She not only did loads of work around um, benzene, which is a molecule that we see an awful lot in, in the oil industry in particular, and it's also something that lots of, of chemists who work in the lab will use, so synthetic chemists is what we call them. She also did lots of work about the fundamental background of my science, which is called crystallography, so I'm, I'm obsessed with crystals. And she was incredibly good at what she did. She was really methodical and mathematical, 
But what's also really cool about her is she was a woman of many interests. So she also did lots of work around um, representation in science and also was president of the British Association for the Advancement of Science, which is now the British Science Association. And she was also the first female president of the International Union of Crystallography. She was the first female professor in chemistry at UCL. She was also one of my favourite stories about her is that she was a woman of principle and was really, really invested in her science and also her beliefs. And as a Quaker, this means that she is very, very pro-peace. And when the war came around, everyone said, you have to do war service. And she said, I'm, this is against my religion. This is against my beliefs. I am not doing this. So they said, OK, we're going to fine you. She's like, I'm not paying this fine. Uh, this is against my religion. This is fundamentally against something I believe in. So they said, OK, off you go to jail. So she went to Royal Holloway for a month. Whilst she was there... She worked on what is still one of the fundamental textbooks in our science and wrote up an awful lot of of the science there. And that has been used ever since. And I think it's an amazing testament to her and to her work. And one of the reasons I get so passionate about her is that, so if we go back to the very start where I mentioned benzene, her work on benzene was critical to the field. It actually, she proved something about benzene that no one else had understood. And we'd argued over it for hundreds of, well, a hundred years, actually, being being politically (laughs) correct. It was a hundred years, exactly. And she was the person who proved definitively that the structure of benzene was flat. And this was, at the time, it was groundbreaking. Chemists had never really understood this before. People said she was wrong. She was right. But her story doesn't feature in any textbooks. And that's what kind of set off for me the whole project about this. That actually people weren't talking about her. She's a scientist who... Her name should be in the textbook, but instead we have the two men who weren't quite right and we don't have her at all. And you say, that's really sad because actually she deserves to be there. She deserves to have visibility like we keep talking about. You stole my one because she's from UCL. So yeah. that's <laughs> that's all, my excuse. I think we're biased though because she's Irish uh, well, as well. So, I know, you know, I didn't want to go there. <laughs> For me, I think it would have to be Jocelyn Bell mm. Burnell. Again, you know, an amazing scientist who, who discovered uh, pulsars back in, I think, the 1960s, but uh, wasn't given due credit at the time. And only very recently come into the limelight, much deserved. But also the fact that, you know, she's she's taking a stand for, for women in science. Um, so it's it's not just about uh, making your, your way to, to the top of your profession, but also making sure that you're doing enough to, to help others behind you so that they don't have to go through the same obstacles, the same challenges that, you, ne- you, you know, you had to go through yourself. And for that, I have utmost respect for her. And just the, the, the grace and dignity with which she handled all of this over the years uh, and, and just how she's come out. Uh, she's still, you know, uh, come out strong and, and fighting. Um, and that's that's quite inspiring for me. Mm. And she recently won a very large amount of yes, money. Yes, yes, of course. And donated it. Oh, yes. To help women and girls in physics and so she and minorities as well yes so it's not just women yeah Yeah. well there's a good point we've been talking about women do you think there is more widespread bias absolutely (laughs) yeah it's not a problem that is confined to women all of these biases and stereotypes are definitely upheld in science we are not the objective place that we like to think we are no, you have like, so intersectionality quite often if people belong to one or more groups then the issues can be compounded and I think one of the biggest things is that we don't really understand the problems yet, really to the full extent that we need to, to be mm. able to address them. So one of the risks is often that people design these one-off measures that try to adjust things and that actually often makes it worse. And this is, I have to say, fair juice to the Royal Society of Chemistry mm-hmm. because one of the things they do is they're very methodical. So 
you know, Gemma mentioned data. They, the data is what we need to be able to drive things forward because if you can't identify a problem then it's very difficult to say what the solution should be or even that we need a solution. Mm. And it's, you know, it's important to listen to people. That's absolutely critical. But you need to work together with the data to be able to say, if one person says, for example, bullying is a problem, you, you wouldn't set up a carer's helpline for just one person. You know, you would, you would talk to them and try and get them some support. But if you're identifying that lots and lots of people have problems, that's where, you know, the data helps prove that we need this care line. So I think it's really important to, to know that we, we need to try and understand the problem and then also drive proper, you know, proper measures and not just one-off transient things that people try to do at the moment. Yeah, no, I'd, absolutely. I'd like to echo what Claire says. said. Over the years, a lot of the evidence has been anecdotal. People talking about their experiences over coffee. What, what has changed, I think, is that more and more institutions, the Royal Society of Chemistry coming up with this uh, Breaking the Barriers report, uh, is, is actually putting numbers to those voices and, and you know showing very clearly that there is a problem. And uh, we are scientists. This is how we go about any of our research. So it, it, it makes sense that, that these sort of you know, data are being collected and, and analyzed and hopefully uh, some you know somewhere along the line uh, there will be a step change uh, in, in how we think about and there are of course other institutions that are seeking this so I mentioned already Athena Swan which is founded and 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 focuses mostly on gender but there's also um, the Stonewall um, Trust and they are trying to do something quite similar to Athena Swan but specifically for LGBTQ um, plus um, trying to highlight issues that people with different sexualities or different gender identities even will be having within um, sciences physical sciences so those are really important things that 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 should be highlighted we even just today was getting emails in my inbox about things that UCL are going to do in a bid to kind of follow up on these um, stonewall directives and these Athena Swan directives so it's quite nice to see that it is now becoming uh, more of a conversation it's now no longer this awkward thing that people bring up and it, it is simply just it's just part of agendas now certainly from from where I am uh, it, it's brought up in staff meetings and it's always something that's that's mentioned even in committees I sit on a couple of committees associated with the Royal Society of chemistry and at the start we have these um, disclaimers or, or uh, points that we make which is specifically within this we are ensuring like we are basically pledging or, or making a deal to ensure that we that we are as diverse and, and inclusive as possible with everything that we do and it's so important that, that just becomes normal going forward yeah we're introducing expectations of behavior mm-hmm. onto our events nice. um, okay, yeah. so it's a lot of it is associated with the bullying and harassment work mm-hmm. But it covers sort of so many of these issues that actually, if you're going to come to one of our events, mm-hmm. you're going to have to behave like a decent human being. Yeah. Science has presumably had its own me too moments. Is that something that you have hope for the future, that things might be improving on that front? So I think science does have quite a problem with bullying and harassment. So it's something that came out in our survey quite a lot that mm. we didn't ask a specific question about bullying but so many of the free text responses, people kind of said, actually, this is happening. This is something that we're concerned about. So we're maybe developing a little later than some of their areas, and we're still only just finding the extent of the problem. But hopefully because of the more wide societal change to say this is not okay, 
that we can be part of that. When the Me Too hashtag first came out, I mean, I, I, I exclusively pretty much follow scientists on Twitter because I'm rock and roll like that. <laughs> um, and there there was a similar set of trending of, of hashtags with Me Too, that of people telling their stories. So it's it's certainly there as as with probably any industry. But again, it's, it's making this part of the conversation. And what's interesting is that there are now more things coming to light as a result of that. So um, perhaps where there has been an action within a, a, an institute or an industry, it is coming more to people's attention and forefront. And once again, it's about making sure that the conversations exist so that these things can't just keep on happening in a vicious cycle without anybody kind of putting something, you know, a stopper in the works to stop it or to try and divert it or even to try and support people. Like, again, it's it's coming back around to supporting people. So these things will happen, but ensuring that there is a, a voice and a way in which people can do that. So again, institutions, I think, are trying very hard to, to do this. You know, again, the, the bullying helpline from the Royal Society of Chemistry, and I know that there are other institutions who are setting up these, these um, reporting forms, anonymous and otherwise. And it's not just reporting. It's not just sort of saying these things. It's, it's a way of trying to find support, not just tattletailing type of thing it's it, it support it's about that coming back around and actually some of the funders are really getting behind this as well so the welcome trust now will not give funding to people who have proved bullying and harassment cases against them mm-hmm. and so your science will not get funded if you're bullying your research group I think it's probably really important to mention at this point that there is actually a scientist called Dr. Beth Ann McLaughlin who's fighting for her job at Vanderbilt. And she is one of the people who has led the Me Too movement around in, in science. Mm. And it's quite it's quite a horrific story. It's very, very difficult to read. And I think she's very, very brave because it's it's something where she was originally going to be promoted. And then after all of this kind of fell out, they pulled back on that. And there's... It's a really difficult situation, so it's something that's definitely happening and very, very topical at the moment. It's similar in other industries as well, but in in academia and in science, your career progression depends very much, uh, you know, on on the people that you you know, the people you collaborate with. Mm. And so it can be really difficult to talk about these things, uh, knowing the repercussions at the other end. And so I think, you know, universities and institutions really need to make take a strong stand in in supporting the the women who who do speak out. Um, Supporting the people. The people. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And, and, you know, just making sure that nobody uh, feels like this is going to be a going to have a negative impact on their career, which oftentimes it does as you mentioned. I wondered if any of you had any initiatives that you were involved in to try and combat any of the things we've been talking about today. I think one of the things to to highlight is that it's we keep saying visibility and I think something that's something I'm personally very invested in because I think it's a major problem. The idea of not being able to see women in science is, is such an issue. So whether that's thinking about so the textbooks project I mentioned earlier on where we're looking at gender bias there or thinking about, for example, nominating women for awards, um, which should be both a man and a woman's job. Mm-hmm. Um, things like this are as things that I'm very passionate about. I, I also I work very closely. Gemma mentioned Athena Swan, so I I've actually been on a couple of panels. So I've been like reviewing awards and things like that, and it's quite a a time consuming thing as it needs to be. So it's actually evaluating how well do people you know, ascribe to the beliefs and to, to equality. So there's lots of, of programmes like that. But it, I think sometimes people think, and this is what really worries me, is that it's a silver bullet. And 
it is not a silver bullet problem because we would have shot the bullet now if mm. we could have. Yeah. You know, it would be solved and job done. It's actually just a series of many, 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 many tiny steps that kind of accumulate together and not one person can do all these steps. So we all have different responsibilities and different ways we can approach it and different amounts of time we can give to it. And I think one of the issues that maybe I think we really need to start talking about is value and how we value that work because a lot of people are doing this work um, in their spare time and that's actually quite problematic because how much do we value this? I think this actually comes back to, unfortunately, a lot of issues traditionally with women's work is that it's not been valued Mm. say in things like the home for example but elsewhere and so if you're pushing that in chemistry you know how do we how do we value this work in a sense of is this part of your job profile is this part of your your appraisal you know will this actually be be identified as being something that's worthy for the university to and research institution to have on an institutional level I mean, I'm obviously only going to be able to speak about what we're what we're doing within UCL, but but we we do have um, these inclusion and diversity committees which set up events so that people can come along. Again, we try and get all of our staff involved. As Claire said, it's absolutely not the responsibility of solely the the women or the women, people who identify as women um, to to do this. Um, we have quite a lot of male champions. We have a lot of men on our Athena Swan committees as well. But we have nice things which which I previously hadn't really thought a huge amount about. But for example. Um, We have mentorship schemes, which doesn't sound like a lot. But, for example, I have a number of women who are my mentees and they are kind of um, not at permanent level. They are still within these contract roles that Pip mentioned earlier on. And they come to me sort of saying, you know, I I want I want to go into academia. What do I do? And and, you know, all I all I'm doing is I'm, I'm having conversations with them. I'm giving them advice about places that I looked, how I dealt with things, other useful people to talk to. And I initially approached this and I thought, my goodness, I'm not going to be able to tell these 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 women anything that they don't already know that they don't. But that's absolutely not not true. They're they're not getting that advice from other places. They need to have these contacts and these visit these these other women to go and speak to and see. So even small things like that are are, are things that institutions can do to prevent this this so called leaky pipeline of losing those women as we go from undergraduate through to postgraduate up to lecturer and through to prof level. Yeah, I think the uh, mentorship thing is, can, can be a huge boost to, um, you know, to, to further women's careers. This is something that I didn't have access to myself, but now, you know, yeah. sort of on the other side, I, you know, through the Royal Society, I provide mentorship to, uh, you know, a few women and, and it, it, it astounds me, um, you know, sort of the questions that they come up with and, you know, thinking back, it's like I had the same questions as well. Yeah. And it wasn't obvious immediately um, what the answers were. So it's nice that these schemes are running. Um, it's, it's very useful to have men and women in, in sort of higher up positions who are championing the cause yeah. for equality and, and diversity. It shouldn't just always fall to women. It, it, it has to be for everyone to get mm. involved in. And that's, and we, I think, Yeah, we do I have a lot of them. Sorry to introduce yeah. you. We do have a lot of them. I just Because I was just exactly thinking of these words, male champion. I mean, I, let's not make out this, that, that we are completely isolated. There are a huge number mm-hmm. of, of male champions of, of women. They are working really very hard to, 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 to kind of help and lend a voice and lend support uh, but I still do think that they're in the minority uh, yeah, still. yeah um, yeah and uh, you know as, as Claire was saying um, at the end of the day we're, we're all busy scientists we, <laughs> we want to get on with our research and teaching and all of that and uh, but at the same time we want to make the world a better place for the next generation of scientists so uh, I feel like the you know this should be this this work should be spread across and, and often the people mm. who do outreach etc happen to be women at least you yeah. know from 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 what I see I really would like to see everyone uh, 
uh, get involved. Um, often people talk about getting girls interested in, in STEM subjects. I have two small children, a girl and a boy, and, and I can say that, you know, they're both equally interested in, in, mm-hmm. in not just science, mm-hmm. in art and music, in everything. And I, I don't think that's necessarily where the problem is, but mm, absolutely. absolutely, society bombards you with images and uh, expectations. And, and I try very hard to, to make sure that, you know, my kids can go about growing up in a world where, you know, they have equal opportunities regardless. You know, girls are, are interested, uh, absolutely, but it's it's sort of the uh, barriers that they face when they want to do something with that, and, and that's what needs to be uh, removed. So yeah. it's, uh, yeah, it's it's not just enough getting, uh, <laughs> working really hard to, to solve a problem at the, you know, where I don't think the problem necessarily lies, but rather making the, uh, the playing field a, a lot more level yeah. as you go forward. Mm. It's actually something that drives me bananas because we say, okay, girls need to get into science. And we're like, okay, whoa, whoa. I've literally just written a letter to the newspaper complaining about this because there are nonstop articles Mm. in the news saying, girls need to do science. And you're like, okay, so you're saying girls need to do science, but you're not thinking about the fact that actually if a young woman quite reasonably sits down and reads the paper or her guardian reads the paper and they see these things that say girls are not in science and the stats are terrible that they're going to be completely intimidated and quite rightly think, this is not a place for me, this is clearly a very difficult place to work, I'm going to go work somewhere else where I'm going to be valued. And I think we also, like Sahini just said, those barriers are so important that that's where we need to be focusing on what they are, how do we remove them, how do we level the playing field. And it just, it drives me mad that journalists, uh, I have a particular bugbear at the moment with journalists saying these things because... It's, it's actually making the situation much worse than it needs to be. We need to focus yeah. on different problems. This is attitude of fixing the girls yes. rather than yes. fixing yeah. the system, and that drives me mad. <laughs> yeah. This is it, exactly. That, exactly. You know, the problem is with, everyone says the problem is with the girls, and you're like, no, no. it's not their job <laughs> to literally kind of claw over this giant hill and mountain we've put in front of them. It should be our job to actually get out the shovels and spades and start digging the holes for them to get over the hill. You know, that's, that's how it should work. Now, I have one last question for you. It's about the future. And I know, given that we don't know what's going to happen in about a month's time. <laughs> I, I we might get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult to make any predictions about what's even going to be happening here on the 1st of April. But if we were to reconvene in 10 years' time, where do you think we will be? Where would you like us to be? I'd like us to not be talking about it. Mm. I'd like yeah. us just to make this, that the problems were solved. That's the dream. The reality is perhaps a bit starker. Um, I think we'll still be working on it. Um, it's just because there's so much work to do and there's so many barriers that we need to break down. I think, you know, the, the dream, we, we, we're all kind of, I think in this room, we're quite positive about inclusion in science and we would just love that everyone would be able to come and say, I want to do science. And you say, great, go for it. There's no barriers there. You can, you know, walk in the door and do whatever you want. But I think we also have to be a bit realistic because we we are the ones at the moment, at least, who have the duty and the, you know, we, we willingly take on the responsibility to crack those barriers for other people. I think there's a lot more work to go before we, we are there. <laughs> I completely agree with Claire. I would love to make my own job completely obsolete. <laughs> that's the dream. Um, but I think mm. over the last 10 years, we've only had very incremental process. And I hope that we can accelerate that pace over the next 10 years. And I think the fact that big institutions and funders are starting to get behind this means that actually we will get somewhere once people 
start putting their money where their mouth is, mm-hmm. that's what makes the change. Yeah. And I think because it's ingrained, I think that's the problem. It's ingrained, and once people kind of get above, they 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 pull the ladder up behind them. This oh. is uh, something that I was discussing with somebody not that long ago, and that's that that's for everybody as well. And that's that's not okay. We need to keep on having these conversations until they become less frequent because it's all happening. That certainly would be ideal. Absolutely. I mean, I agree with uh, what's just been said Uh, in in the next 10 years. I'm an optimist, so I I hope we won't have to have these conversations, although that's probably not uh, going to happen. But at at least, um, you know, just just the fact that people are more aware uh, of of these issues. And as you said, funders, universities, etc., have uh, have taken the the right steps towards, uh, um, you know, making science truly for everyone um, so that if anyone has the passion, if anyone has the the dedication, the the drive to to pursue science, that they can without, you know, having to, to... second guess themselves at every mm. stage alongside everything else <laughs> that's the point we have we have these massive mountains of things it's you know it's a it's it's a tough job but then having that al- alongside that secondary thought at the back of your mind that's right of having to do those extra things hip if people are interested in finding out more about your report or about the work that you guys are doing where can they find out more so you can read our report on the RSC website. If you go to rsc.li forward slash chem equality, you will find all of our resources and the report there. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time, everyone. You. It's been really interesting. Thank, Thank, you. You. Thank you. Standard issue for all women.